0: Welcome to the April 8th, 2016 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on the head of the National Transportation Security Administration announcing his support of DIA's proposal to relocate the airport's security checkpoints. Denver Airport CEO Kim Day says the plan aims to serve as a national prototype in the airport safety and would significantly reduce the exposure of waiting travelers and TSA personnel. Patty Calhoun from Westward, this seems like maybe a response, at least in the safety part, to the Brussels situation, but I think the plan's been around for a while. What did you think of the announcement of the endorsement from TSA?
1: Well, the plan's been in the works for over a year. Uh, The TSA endorsement is convenient. I wish they would pay as much attention to planning for heavy traffic periods like over Christmas where you know you had two hour waits at TSA's lines and they blame the airlines for not telling them there would be more flights. Then they said oops we made a mistake or after the airport was closed for a day and there were again hour-long lines at TSA. TSA should be able to figure that out too. Uh, I think the new location could be great if it really works out so it's convenient and it does not result in the main terminal which is a lovely space suddenly turning into a disgusting shopping mall and we've certainly seen that in a lot of other airports.
0: That would be uh, sad to see. David Kolp of the Independence Institute and DU Law School, what do you think would be the safest scenario for travelers since that seems to be at least top of mind right now for folks traveling?
2: Sure and I'm glad they're they're working on this and I'll be curious to see exactly how they do it. They're talking about. I think there, there's a FEMA camp underneath the airport that's, that's now near the on the Weston Hotel, and they might move some operations down there. Uh, but how do you have an airport where you don't have large crowds of dense people checking in, bringing in their baggage, and then lining up to go through the security checkpoint? You know, you, you can keep expanding that perimeter further and further out, but at some point, there's going to be here's where the outside world transitions into the airport. Now, maybe they've got some great way to do it, and if they do it, then great for them, and that'll be a real uh, boost for security.
0: Eric, even though the plan has been around for, uh, like Patty said, for a long time, do you feel that this response from the TSA is in response to what happened in Brussels?
3: I don't know if it's in response. I think it predated Brussels in terms of the, the the initial planning. Now maybe TSA or National Transportation Safety Board jumping on board may be linked to Brussels, but I don't know that there's a direct correlation. I really have two questions. One is, obviously, where are they planning to put it? What is the alternative plan? And secondly, it currently occupies, as Patty pointed out, those two checkpoints occupy one heck of a lot of real estate, and what are they planning to do with that real estate that is an improvement as opposed to, you know, uh, more coffee houses and, and uh, smoothie shops and, and places to spend your money.
0: Yeah, one more Chick-fil-A is probably not the best uh, use for the uh, the terminal there. Uh, round of the panel, Penfield take turn to Q-Talk Rock. Um, as a policy from the airport, do you feel this is the right way to go? And what do you think about the endorsement from the TSA, which some people would, it would be questionable credibility sometimes, I think, uh, from the head of the TSA?
4: Yeah, you know, it's an interesting dynamic. I, I, I'm glad the TSA is at least uh, willing to entertain other ways of providing security services because many would question whether the current way they do it is either efficient or convenient. Um, or effective for travelers. Uh, At the end of the day, I think Eric raises the right question, where, when, how are they going to do this? But anything that DIA can do that can expedite the process of getting through security and getting either to your gate on a concourse or if the terminal now becomes on the other side is the security line and you can do some things in the terminal in terms of relaxing or getting something to eat or, or doing some last-minute shopping or picking up something you've forgotten, that's great. But, but the key consideration has to be safety and getting you through the checkpoint speedily, um, which doesn't happen right now. Fresh off a convincing
0: win in Wisconsin, Ted Cruz will be the only presidential candidate to speak in person at the Colorado Republican State Assembly on Saturday. Meanwhile, six of the 13 candidates for U.S. Senate hope to get on the ballot through the convention, joining the four who have already submitted petitions earlier this week. Patty, will will Colorado begin a surge for Cruz as he heads into Cleveland a few months from now?
1: Somehow I don't see Colorado really pushing Cruz over the top. You know, it's disappointing for all of us who are going to have a trump weekend here in Colorado because he, you know, there were rumors that Trump was coming. It looked like it was going to be on his schedule. He pulled out, which I think is good. Somehow I don't see Colorado Springs being real Trump territory. It might be good for Cruz. Um, Certainly, you remember when Colorado Springs, their eco-devo plan was to bring a lot of churches there in the 80s and give them tax breaks. And that's one of the reasons Colorado Springs is really the most conservative religious area that we've got in the state. So it's a perfect place for Cruz to go. He'll probably have a great time at that convention. The people who are not going to have a great time are the candidates who are trying to get voted into the Senate primary, because it just doesn't divide very well for people who need to get 30 percent of the vote.
0: David, piggybacking what Patty just said, who do you think at least ideologically has an advantage of the state assembly if you need 30 percent minimum to get on the ballot via the convention and six of them are going to be going for it? uh, that's That's a lot of division. Who has the edge?
2: The uh, conventional wisdom would be State Senator Tim Neville, who is the favorite candidate of Rocky Mountain gun owners and also of Michael Bennett. Uh, he's the guy <laughs> who, if, and if we have a crowded primary, uh, ultimately with other candidates getting on by petition, he could you know, win it with maybe 26%. Uh, And and that's fine for winning a primary, but I don't think he's got uh, the the ability to appeal uh, to a a broader share of the Colorado electorate and and win the the general election. It was a smart move by Trump to not come, because I think he's he's spending the weekend in New York trying to get his uh, chaos campaign uh, a little more organized. Cruz has followed the Barack Obama strategy of 2008, which you can trace back to George McGovern in 1972 and and other successful candidates. He's extremely well organized, which, by the way, is one of the things that shows he might be able to actually have the infrastructure to be competitive in in a general election. Uh, The Trump campaign has very little, uh, essentially no organization here, Uh, just they were trying out similar problems in Washington State, where they realized, oh, we need to get people to run as delegates in Washington state, but they sent out a blast email to their Trump supporters in Washington, D.C., which actually is, is very far away. And they did it two days after the, delegate, uh, pro- the, the time when you could get on the ballot to be a delegate in Washington state had already closed. So Trump is doing a smart thing to stay in New York and hope he can run up the delegate count there.
0: Eric, as you look at the playing field now, regardless of who comes out of the GOP U.S. Senate primary, can any of them win in a state like Colorado if Trump or Cruz are at the top of the ballot?
3: I think it's going to be tough no matter what Republican is on the top of the ballot, even if one of their you know, the or candidates, a Rubio, a Kasich, somebody that people thought might be a more attractive general election candidate, had somehow walked away with that nomination, dialing the clock way back. This was always going to be a tough race in my mind. Let's not forget that Cory Gardner was the best candidate the Republicans had on that bench by far, that he ran in the best year Republicans are going to see in a long time, 2014, that Mark Udall entered that race with some weaknesses, political weaknesses, that Michael Bennett doesn't have. And at the end of the day, Cory Gardner won by under two points, 1.9 points. Here you have a presidential year, a whole different turnout equation. Bennett with uh, some strengths that Udall didn't have, and mainly no Cory Gardner to run against him. So it's always going to be a heavy lift, a tough lift. On the presidential side, quickly, I get a real kick out of the extent to which Ted Cruz has now become the savior of the Republican establishment, (laughs) which had no use for the guy. A month ago, much less six months ago. Um, but all of a sudden, he is the only thing standing between them and Donald Trump, and the manner in which the establishment is awkwardly embracing Cruz. Even if Cruz could pull off this nomination, I think it is increasingly likely that we're going to have a contested convention. I think unless Trump can have another surge of momentum, and all the polls seem to be tracking the other way, even though he'll do well in New York and New Jersey and some other places, but his unfavorability numbers are completely underwater now, not only with the country at large, even with Republicans. Uh, Even with his base of Republicans. Even with his base of Republicans. He is so far underwater, it's hard to see how that reverses and that he is able to get to that 1237 magic number prior to Cleveland. So uh, if Ted Cruz walks away with that nomination, well, it spares the country from Donald Trump and spares that party from Donald Trump. But is Cruz a whole lot more viable against Hillary Clinton than Trump is? He's a different candidate, but I'm not convinced he's a terribly viable candidate. The Republicans are still holding very bad cards.
0: Penn, while Colorado Democrats uh, probably aren't getting cocky, do they have a lot of reasons to walk into the situation feeling confident seeing Ted Cruz come to town and uh, 13 U.S. Senate candidates being willed down to probably at least maybe six, five or six at least? Should they be feeling confident?
4: No. Um, and nor you should you be complacent. I, I mean, the reality is, is in the 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 Senate race. Um, I agree with Neville, uh, with with David Neville's probably the the, the one lo- most likely to come out. But I also agree with Eric. I think the stars are aligned, and the current political environment is such that no one who gets this Republican nomination is going to beat Michael Bennett, given the current context we 're working in and, and and part of that is impacted by the National Republican Party and this entire primary season they've been going through and and eric is right all of a sudden now ted cruz is everybody's best friend and i watched some of the morning talk shows this morning with lindsey graham during his redemption tour because five months ago he was saying if somebody in the u.s senate killed ted cruz on the floor of the senate and we had the trial in the senate nobody would ever get convicted because we all hate his guts um... And it's kind of, it's it's worse than damning with faint praise. It's damning with no praise because everybody's saying, we can't stand him, we hate his guts, we think he's horrible, but we prefer him to the other guy whose guts we hate even more, who we don't like, so we'll make him our nominee. Uh, and for some reason, I guess it's because they've decided we've got to be conservative. We'd rather be conservative and go down in flames than consider nominating a guy like Kasich, who is not a flaming liberal but who at least might be more palatable to a broader portion of the general electorate. And and I give Kasich credit because everybody's telling him, get out, you're stealing my votes, and he's just hanging in there saying, yeah, I'm stealing some of everybody's votes because I'm the only one acting like a rational adult in this room. Um, Just a fascinating environment to watch. Two slightly different
0: versions of the state budget passed the House and Senate this week, and now the bills head to a bipartisan committee to work out the differences. Meanwhile, Governor John Hickenlooper gave signs this week that he may be willing to suspend work on the Clean Power Plan if the project is holding up the budget process. David, a lot of movement with budgets this week at the state capitol, um, but what did you think of Hickenlooper's announcement? Is it as much of, uh, does it stop as much of the Clean Power Plan as it seemed in headlines?
2: Well, the the details will will tell us, and the uh, two legislative bodies, different budgets, are going to go to a conference committee. So that'll be where, where things get hashed out. I certainly hope it turns out like the headlines did because this this mean power plan is first of all illegal. The EPA doesn't have the legal authority to impose it. And that's why the United States Supreme Court has made the very rare step of imposing a stay on it uh, while the, the legal challenge on that goes forward. That, that's a powerful signal about how extremely out of line this thing is. The city, the Colorado shouldn't be doing this. It's a harmful thing. And it's an example of the uh, old Democratic Party versus the new. The old Democratic Party was the party of the little guy and the working man. This is something that is going to tremendously jack up heating and electricity prices for the poorest people in a significant way. You know, if you're Tom Steyer or a bolder progressive, you know, you may love spending an extra fifty bucks a month on your energy bill because that makes you feel good aesthetically and, and therefore you're somehow contributing to stopping global warming but if if you're living in a, in a trailer park or in in a little home that you can barely afford, that extra 50 bucks a month is is, is a disaster. And the the Democratic Party of Harry Truman and Franklin Roosevelt would have been on the side of the little guy and not on the side of the billionaire campaign financiers with their aesthetic sensibilities and their uh, hysterical uh, attitudes on global warming that everything else has to be destroyed uh, for essentially zero measurable progress on that issue.
0: Eric, were you surprised to see that the budget had cleared that both the House and the Senate, it relatively cleared a lot of hurdles uh, quickly? I mean, it, it's not done, but I guess I expected a, a lot bigger bloodbath than we saw in the
3: papers. No, I'm totally with you, Dominic. I, I think there are two headlines to this story. Number one is that it was relatively smooth, it was relatively quick. There's always going to be some issue of contention between a Democratic House and a Republican Senate, but the fact that it's really narrowed down to this one issue of contention, uh, in the governor's words, he called it ridiculous. Some people might phrase it somewhat differently, but it is I think it is more symbolic than real. Uh, I think it's the Republicans finding something to shoot at, uh, some target, and obviously they were going to find something. This will get worked out in some way, shape, form at the Joint Budget Committee, which acts as the conference committee, uh, and between them and the governor's office. Uh, The second headline to me is how the budget, no matter how smooth it was, doesn't really deal with the big issues. The Republicans still want a major injection toward roads. I don't know where that money comes from. Uh, And obviously the Democrats and the governor have not given up on the hospital provider fee. So those two issues remain sitting out there, even though we're going to have a budget approved here shortly.
0: Penn, from your time in the state legislature uh, to looking at this budget mm-hmm. situation, how do the two compare?
4: Um, they're absolutely no different. When I, when I served on the JBC, we, also, we had a democratically controlled Senate and a Republican-controlled House. So the JBC was split three-three, evenly divided, Republican and Democrat. And what happens in that context is you know when you're in the budget room that at the end of the day you're going to take the budget to the two chambers and there are going to be disagreements on either side and at the end of the day you've you got to pass a balanced budget so the reality is most of the compromises that have been made were done by the JBC before the long bill was even introduced this, I think this is a tempest in a teapot and frankly uh, this is I'll have to criticize the governor on this issue had he let it be known early on that he didn't care one way or another if this was in the budget dollars to donuts, the JBC would have never put it in there or or allowed Democrats to amend it in, it would have become a non-issue and the budget just would have sailed through. But, you know, the the, the JBC is the conference committee. They'll sit down. They'll probably revert back to the original budget they submitted, send it to both of the chambers and say you need to adopt the conference committee report, adopt the budget as we originally wrote it, and we'll go on our merry way and and we'll be done with it. The the hospital provider fee is embodied in separate legislation and if that gets passed, they'll just do supplemental to this budget and change uh, the the accounting on it and, and, and make that accommodation. Um, but this is a lot of drama in theater uh, with no real consequence.
0: Pat, we only have a few weeks left in the legislature. I, for one, thought the budget was going to be the main event. Now it's settling the undercard. What do you expect in the next couple of weeks to grab the headlines?
1: Well, we might see more surprises like we got from the aforementioned Tim Neville, who once again had to go in at the last second with the budget and start talking about the evils of Planned Parenthood and the evils of women's health. Let's remember Colorado was the first state to legalize abortion. People have looked very closely at where any money goes to Planned Parenthood, that it is going to provide health services for women in areas, and men too sometimes, in areas where they would never get them otherwise. Can we quit having this fight and the drama every year with the budget? It's not a huge, I mean, it's great that the budget went through as smoothly as it did. Partly it's because I think everyone's looking at the fact that one economic downturn and we're going to be back in as much trouble as we've been in before. So sooner or later, Colorado is going to have to deal with the constitutional problems of Gallagher, 23, and if they want to do something with Tabor.
0: Denver City officials announced this week that a controversial flood drainage plan will cost an extra $100 million than previously estimated. The plan addresses a northeast Denver stormwater issue brought about by the I-70 construction project and directs floodwaters to Denver City Park Golf Course. Eric, uh, this seems like a compromise that are better for homeowners than golfers because it's it's, it's helping, I guess at least by the plan, uh, floodwaters take out neighborhoods, but $100 million is, not, is nothing to sneeze at. What did you think of the announcement?
3: No, $100 million is, is indeed nothing to sneeze at. And the total number for this project now is approaching $300 million. And obviously, if anyone wants to bet that that's the final number, I would take that bet. I would suspect that by the time we talk about this issue a few years down the road, there's substantial overruns on, on top of that, pun not intended. Uh, a couple angles on this. One is obviously there's this... They call it an indirect connection, but I think it is more than indirect, to the whole I-70 project. And if it were not for that project, I don't think we'd be having this conversation. Stormwater as a general subject, it's nothing we would talk about around this table, and it's nothing most people around Denver would talk about. It's one of those topics that make your eyes glaze over. But all of a sudden now, given some of the neighborhood impacts and given the financial cost, it is becoming a subject of some discussion and some controversy in this town. For myself, I regard, as a golfer, I regard City Park Golf Course as just another golf course, and I think there are better ones around town and certainly around the metro area. For a whole lot of people who grew up playing City Park Golf Course, it is sacred land. And for them to see this golf course be somehow jeopardized or significantly altered uh, by flood retention ponds is not, is not sitting well. So I think this issue is going to get hotter uh, before it cools down. I think it does have the potential to really engage and engage some different constituencies around town, both on the neighborhood level as well as some uh, fiscal hawks to the extent there are any uh, in Denver. And, and Mayor Hancock, on this one, um, there's a potential he could start taking on some water.
0: Wouldn't be the first time in this administration's history now. Uh, Penn, you understand uh, both water issues and civic planning issues better than most folks. When you look at this plan,
4: what are your thoughts? You know, my thoughts are what I'm hearing people say in the community, and they want to know who dropped the ball. There are at least three major issues of concern. Number one, remember this contract is the one that was controversial because it was passed by the Denver City Council right before the council changed due to the last election cycle, because you had several people who are new to the city council, who said, no, please don't vote on this. Wait until we take office because we have some different thoughts on this. The prior council pushed it through. Now it turns out the numbers are off by $100 million. So a lot of people in the community are asking, who dropped the ball on this? And how can you be off by a magnitude of 50% on the cost of this project? And if you're off that far, what else are you wrong about, number one? Number two, it's interesting because the way the story played in the Greater Park Hill newspaper is City Park Golf Course going to be closed and made obsolete. So you, now you've got a number of homeowners in the area who are saying, wait, whoa, 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 we own these homes, some of which look out on a golf course, some of which are near a golf course, and now you're telling us it's going to be a massive detention pond for stormwater drainage? There's no way this is acceptable. So you've got a number of neighborhood groups around City Park who are now becoming outraged because from their point of view, No one said this was part of the deal with this I-70 project. And that's the third piece of this problem. The people in northeast Denver who were opposed to the I-70 tunnel dig before, who advocated the 270 bypass or something, now they're saying, you see, we told you this was all a bunch of hooey. They don't know what they're doing. The numbers don't make sense. And this is going to be far more costly and disruptive than what you were told, and if they're wrong about this, what else is everybody wrong about? So it's not just the city, but unfortunately CDOT has got to figure this out. Um, Adams County is going to be impacted. A number of folks, what's the old phrase, they got some splaining to do <laughs> because this one isn't looking very good. Uh, Patty,
0: with all this, these different elements going on, uh, is Mayor Hancock as a city, or some officials going to have to get involved?
1: I think they should be getting involved. Yeah, we did a big story on this three weeks ago, and although you think wastewater is a dry topic that people aren't going to be reading about, people were up in arms. One of the first problems is neighbors didn't hear about this. The city said they started outreach back in August, but there are people who are smart, involved people who didn't hear about it till November. And that was when the plan, one of the plans called for taking out 50 houses in coal. Now, I would say something happening on a golf course is probably better than taking out 50 houses. But you're still, why aren't they reaching out more to the neighbors? Why aren't they explaining what they're doing? And then you get into the other thing. Why can't they figure out how much it's going to cost? And if you've got a project like this that's going to cost that much more, what's going to happen at the National Western Center? What is going to happen with the Denver Performing Arts Complex? Those are two huge projects Denver's looking at.
0: David, are too many carts being put before this I-70 construction horse?
2: For the reasons explained, it's... uh... However many carts there are, it doesn't seem like the driver's doing a, a, a good job on this. And stormwater may not get talked about much at this table, but it's a really important topic, and it's actually one of the things the government should be doing. That That's the the core of the infrastructure, and we know uh, that with heavy rains in the, in the spring or in the fall, you, know, you can have really serious flooding, so we've got to do something. Uh, and I hope that the mayor's... That they're right when they say it won't destroy City Park Golf Course. It will just have bigger, more exciting water hazards.
0: <laughs> more exciting indeed. It's time for our very favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. Let's do it rather quickly.
1: Patty? You've got to love it. Gordon Klingenschmitt not only embarrasses himself in Colorado, but across the country on The Daily Show.
2: It's nice to have him as a reliable source for disgrace. David? Bill Clinton, after he accurately told the Black Lives Matter uh, thugs that uh, people who won't let you talk when they're they're protesting are afraid of the truth, and now he's walking that back and said he almost wants to apologize. He was right the first time, and he had the truth yesterday.
3: Eric? I don't know what it does to get a cop fired around this town. There are a couple incidents lately that were finally adjudicated. One police officer, Daniel Politica, received a 10-day suspension big deal for provoking a fight. He was totally instigating the fight uh, in Lodo uh, by going after some street performer. Another cop used his badge inappropriately out, out in Lakewood uh, to pull over someone with whom his family had some kind of family feud. He received a five-day suspension. What do you have to do to get fired around here? Penn?
4: Um, and I agree with Eric. That on top of the fact that the city just approved another $300,000 settlement for the killing another citizen and You know, we we have talked about this numerous times and we've pleaded with the mayor and the city. They have got to get this issue under control. Say something nice about somebody rather quickly. Patty?
1: Hope springs eternal on opening day for the Rockies. If you're down in Lodo right now, it's amazing how happy and great that part of the town looks.
3: David?
2: Denver University Pioneers Hockey, which went all the way to the Frozen Four uh, championship this year.
3: You're here. Eric? Denver lost uh, a fine citizen this week, Jerry McHugh, businessman, philanthropist, uh, a real loss to this community, and also very quickly to my wife, Tracy. We celebrated 30 years this week, so...
0: Congratulations.
4: To
3: Tracy. Congratulations to her. (laughs) Uh, um,
4: It's something I rarely do, and people will be stunned, but John Kasich for standing his ground And allowing another voice to be heard when both Cruz and Trump are telling them to pack his bags and go home. And he refuses to do it.
0: I'll add something to this, say something nice, Pyle. We, uh, Jesse Keelman, our intern, has been with us out from Wartburg College. Uh, today's his last day, so he's done a great job. We wish him the, the very best. He heads back to uh, Iowa. That is all the time we have tonight. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to check out a great night of programs next Wednesday night when we premiere the Heart of the World series from local producer and director Chris Wheeler. It's all about Colorado's five national parks and monuments, and we feature special behind-the-scenes interviews with Wheeler about this great production. As always, be sure to check out our podcast on iTunes and for our CIO postgame segment on Twitter and Facebook. For everyone here at Channel 12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thanks for watching. Good night.